0: Today we're starting a brand new series called True Crime Bible Edition. In this series, we'll be taking a look at 10 dreadful crimes in the Bible, how God responded to the person who committed the crime, as well as what we can learn from each of them. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Recently, I was interviewed on Moody Radio. I was invited to the Dawn and Steve Morning Show. Don was on vacation that week, but I spent an hour talking with Steve about a short book I had written about Satan, entitled Give Satan the Credit He is Due. Steve and I also talked about this podcast, Bible Threads. We talked about the podcast series that are already in the Bible Threads library, as well as what the next series was going to be about. This one. Steve asked what it was about, and I started by sharing where the idea for this series came from. There are really two sources for the idea. One was from a past visit to our family in Washington State. The week we were there, we watched a TV series on Hulu called Only Murders in the Building. It's a comedy series that stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. So that got me thinking along the lines of Only Murders in the Bible. The other idea source for this series uh, were some of my colleagues at Time of Grace. They thought a series on true crime in the Bible would be just great. Well, we'll find out. Let's get started with True Crime Bible Edition. There's probably no better place to start in this series than with the first crime recorded in the Bible among people whom God had originally created in his own image. That image of God was compromised when Satan perpetrated what is really the most disastrous crime in the universe and in all of history, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God's one forbidden rule of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One of the ramifications of their disobedience was that throughout history, serious crimes would be committed by people against people. The first crime recorded in the Bible is the crime of murder committed by Adam and Eve's son Cain against his younger brother Abel. After Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, God removed them from the Garden and placed cherubim at the east entrance of the Garden. In addition to the cherubim, God placed there a flaming sword that flashed back and forth. The cherubim and the flaming sword were to prevent Adam and Eve from returning to the paradise garden to eat from the tree of life. But you know what? One day all believers in Jesus will get to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's what Revelation chapter 2 tells us. Eden's paradise garden will be renewed in the paradise of heaven. Genesis chapter 4 begins, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. When I was a kid, the King James translation was the only one I was familiar with. The KJV translates this verse as, Adam knew his wife. Now both the Old Testament and New Testament writers use a special form of the verb to know to express the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. The verb expresses a knowing from experience. Adam and Eve experienced each other, and God blessed their intimate union with a pregnancy and the birth of a son. As Eve held baby Cain in her arms, she expressed these words, With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. In the original Hebrew, the word order is inverted and literally reads, I have brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. Some Bible scholars, including Martin Luther, translated this as, I have brought forth a man, the Lord. Such a translation suggests that Eve thought that her son was the Lord, the one who had crushed the head of the serpent. But that's not really what the Hebrew text says. There is a preposition in front of the word for Lord, Yahweh, which means with or with the help of. So it seems the better translation is, I have brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. There are two other things worth noting in this single statement of Eve. When Eve testified that the birth of her son was done with the Lord's help, she was acknowledging that God had allowed her to participate in his creation of a new human life. It's a testimony to the miracle of every newborn baby. Secondly, when Eve used the word Lord, she was using the covenant Savior name of God, Yahweh, or Lord, instead of the name of the Creator God, Elohim. The next thing we read in Genesis 4 is, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. We're not given any information about how many years separated these two sons. The only thing we are told is that Cain grew up to become a farmer, and Abel grew up to become a rancher. Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, but we're only told the name of one of them, Seth. Now, Seth wasn't born until Adam was 130 years old. (laughs) Now, that may seem really old to us, but at 130? Adam was still a young buck. He still had 800 more years to live before he died at the ripe old age of 930. Well, let's get back to Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, it's interesting that Cain and Abel gave offerings to the Lord. They obviously learned this from their parents, but how did they learn it? Was this something Adam and Eve decided to do on their own? I suppose it's possible. Or was it something that the Lord God had told Adam and Eve to do as a part of their worship life? That's probably more likely based upon the Lord's future directives to Moses on Mount Sinai when the Lord instituted an elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings. But in the end, we really don't know for sure. At any rate, both Cain and Abel made an offering to the Lord. Here again, we see that their offerings were made not to Elohim, the Creator God, but to the Lord, the Savior God, the name for God that indicates his free and faithful grace. However, Genesis tells us that the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. So, why was that? The account in Genesis may give us a clue. Did you notice that Cain's offering is described as some of the fruits of the soil? Whereas Abel's offering is described as fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Hebrew word for fat portions can mean a particular part of the animal, but it can also mean metaphorically the very best. So Cain gave just an offering. But Abel gave an offering of the very best that he had. The New Testament also gives us some clues as to the difference in these two offerings. The writer to the Hebrews in the Great Faith chapter, chapter 11, tells us, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. So here is another potential difference between Cain and Abel's offerings. The writer to the Hebrews indicates that Abel's offering was made in faith and says nothing about Cain's offering. Also, the New Testament writer Jude described Cain as an ungodly person in the same breath as Balaam, who wanted to curse Israel, and Korah, who rebelled against Moses' leadership. It seems, though, that the Apostle John, in his first letter, gets to the heart of the difference between Cain and Abel's offerings. He wrote, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So the difference was a matter of the heart, of attitude and motive. Abel's offering was given from a heart of faith. Cain's was given from a heart of unbelief. Because Cain belonged to the evil one, a name for Satan. So we have a contrast between believer and unbeliever, even though they both outwardly gave an offering to the Lord. With the Lord, what's in the heart is the most important thing. The writer to the Hebrews also reminds us that without faith, It is impossible to please God. Somehow, and we're not told, Cain knew that his offering did not please the Lord and was not accepted by him. But instead of looking into the mirror of his own heart, he was filled with resentment and became very angry, burning anger. So Cain's heart progressed from a lack of faith to resentment and then to anger. Now, If you were the creator of the universe, the God of heaven and earth, and one of your creatures showed such disrespect and dishonor to you, you might be tempted to just send a bolt of lightning from the heavens and take him out and his life. But the Lord doesn't do that. Because he is the Lord, the God of free and faithful grace. The Lord comes to Cain and says, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You see, here is another indication of why the Lord didn't accept Cain's offering. What he did in his offering wasn't right. The Lord continued, But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So the Lord gave Cain a choice. He could repent of his miserable attitude. He could surrender his anger at God and his brother. He could, in repentance, turn away from the sin crouching at the door of his heart, or he could let sin get the better of him. These are powerful and insightful words. The word of the Lord demonstrates the relationship between the attitude of the sinful heart and the potential resulting sinful actions that can come from it. The phrase crouching at your door is so very descriptive. Think of a a Siberian tiger that is crouched down, lying on the ground, awaiting its next meal to stroll by, ready to pounce, ready to kill. That's the picture the Lord was painting for Cain. Your resentment and anger, Cain, is crouching at the door of your heart. It desires to have you, all of you. You can't let that happen. You must master it. You must keep it in check. You know, in ancient Semitic literature, the verb translated as lying or crouching was also used to describe demons, whom the ancients believed guarded entrances or doorways to buildings. So the verb suggests that Satan uses the anger of the heart to lead one to take the next step. Sadly... Cain rejected the Lord's warning. The sin that was crouching at the door of his heart sprang into evil action. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I have a couple questions for you. Do you think that I am capable of murder? I am. Do you think you are capable of murder? You are. If we allow sinful attitudes to set up shop in our hearts, we're capable of anything. When we do not master our sinful thoughts as the Lord God encouraged Cain to do, Satan will use those thoughts to turn them into sinful actions. The Apostle Peter warns us, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him by resisting the ungodly thoughts of the heart. Say, do you recall the time when the religious leaders of Jesus' day criticized his disciples for eating food without first doing the traditional ceremonial washing? The religious leaders accused them of being unclean, of being defiled. Jesus countered their claims by saying that our uncleanness, what defiles us, isn't what's on the outside of the body, it's what's on the inside. Jesus said what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You and I need to take to heart, and no pun intended, of what's in our heart. Because what's hidden in our heart may eventually show up in our lives. Cain committed the world's first murder. It started with resentment toward the Lord for not accepting his wrongly motivated sacrifice. That resentment spread to his brother Abel, whose sacrifice was accepted by the Lord. The resentment grew into anger. That anger grew into hatred. That hatred turned into murder. The murder of his younger brother Abel. So what happened next? Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I've often wondered, what was the intent of this question from the Lord? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but it it seems to me that this was the Lord, the God of grace, trying to reach Cain's heart one more time and lead him to acknowledge that he had murdered his brother, to repent of his heinous crime, and to seek the Lord's mercy. But that didn't happen. Cain responded to the Lord in disrespect, with sheer arrogance, and with an outright lie. I don't know how he said it, but it might have sounded something like this. Well, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord God now declared his judgment upon Cain. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse— And driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain thought that killing his brother would silence his brother, get him out of his life, but no, Abel's blood kept crying out to the Lord from the ground, wanting justice. And this was the Lord's justice. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Even with the Lord pronouncing a curse, this was not eternal condemnation of Cain. Cain could still acknowledge his wrongdoing, repent and seek forgiveness. The Lord's curse would be a lifelong reminder to Cain of what he did to brother Abel. Cain would no longer be able to produce a living from being a farmer. He would become a wanderer, a nomad who would struggle to make a living. Now, these words apparently got Cain's attention. He responded by saying, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's response tells us that there still was no regret or remorse no acknowledgment of his wrongdoing, no repentance. His biggest fear was that someone from among his own relatives would come and take revenge upon him, blood revenge, a life for a life. Even though Cain certainly didn't deserve the Lord's kindness and grace, the Lord offered it with a promise. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what was this mark that the Lord placed on Cain? The Hebrew word can mean a sign, a token, a pledge, or a symbol. Some Bible scholars think it was a visible mark on his body, like a a tattoo. Other scholars think it was a visible miracle like God gave to Moses. Remember, one of the signs that Moses had, that he was supposed to be the leader of the people of Israel, is that he could throw down his staff on the ground and it would become a snake. Or think about Hezekiah's sign that he would recover from his illness and live 15 additional years. The Lord said, I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. This sign required God to reverse the rotation of the earth. The sign that the Lord gave to Cain could have been a miraculous sign like this, but we just don't know for sure. But it did represent the Lord's promise that Cain would not be murdered like he murdered his brother Abel. Cain left the presence of the Lord and went to live as a nomad east of the Garden of Eden. He suffered the consequences of not acknowledging or repenting of his sin of murder. The Bible tells us very little about Cain. We know he took a wife and had several sons, names of Enoch, Irad, Mahujael, Mathushael, and Lamech. By the way, Lamech is the first bigamist mentioned in the Bible. He married two women. Ada and Zilla. Ada had a son by the name of Jabel. He was known for living in tents and raising livestock. He had a brother, Jubal, who was a musician. He played the harp and the flute. Zilla, Lamech's other wife, had a son named Tubal Cain, who was a blacksmith. He forged all kinds of metal tools out of bronze and iron. And that's about it for Cain's family. Cain was one example of true crime in the Bible. He was the first murderer. We've seen today how the Lord responded to Cain, who demonstrated his unbelief. And for us, the big takeaway is the nature of sin that may be crouching at the door of our hearts. If we want to learn anything from Cain, we need to take sin seriously. We need to resist it, repent of it, and ask God for strength to deal with it no matter what it is. If we don't, we risk having what's hidden in our hearts showing up in our lives. True Crime, Bible edition. In our next episode, we'll be examining another serious crime, another murder. This one, however, will have a much different ending. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. And be sure to check out all of our other podcasts at Time of Grace. You can find them on our website at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.